0: Welcome to Real Review, a podcast to help you decide for yourself if a movie or TV show is worth your time, money, and energy. With Real One, Zoe will break down the nuts and bolts, minus spoilers, of course. And with Real Two, she'll invite you into a conversation about the narrative, characters, background, and the power of story. Here's Real Two Did you have a nightmare? I have nightmares, too. Some day I'll explain it to you-why they came, why they won't ever go away. But I'll tell you how I survive it. I make a list in my head of all the good things I've seen someone do, every little thing I can remember. It's like a game. I do it over and over. It gets a little tedious after all these years, but there are much worse games to play. Katniss says this over her infant baby that she's rocking in her arms while Peta plays with their young son. And those are the final words of the Hunger Games series. And that is my favorite moment. To me, I think those words beautifully tie the whole narrative together in a fitting closing. A final page turned, and they resonate personally with me. My dad suffers with PTSD, and in high school when I did a presentation on PTSD, I used those words from Katniss Everdeen as an example for explaining post-traumatic stress disorder to my peers. I love the character of Katniss for many reasons, and with some of the faults of the Hunger Games plot and world-building, I believe it is Jennifer Lawrence's portrayal of this character that makes those movies stand above the other YA dystopian fodder that was popular in the teen 2000s. Full disclosure, I never read the books, and to be frank, I've heard they aren't well written, so I don't have any interest in reading them. I could be swayed, however, but when I started watching the movies, I was hooked. Instantly became a fan. I love the steampunk aesthetic, the way the film looks familiar yet out of time, like a mirror reality to our own instead of some distant future. I love the characters of Katniss, PETA, General Snow, Haymitch, don't like Gale, but nothing is perfect, and many others. But like I said, I love the themes the Hunger Games play with, the reality and hardship of revolution, the manipulation of media on mass populations, and the cost of war psychologically. So when I heard they were making a prequel, I was skeptical. I didn't even want to see it. How could they top such a great series that ended on a perfect note? Here comes the next tribute, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. It's been about a week since I saw the film. I've had some time to think about the movie, its context in the series, and I have some thoughts I want to share with you. And you know the drill. Spoilers ahead. I'm going to review the general plot and touch on some things I think the movie did well and where I think it was lacking, and I'm going to wrap up with my concerns for the future of this franchise and where we are culturally in a world of remakes, sequels, and prequels. The movie opens on the words, Part 1, The Mentor. And I was a bit concerned because, okay, we're doing part one now. What does that mean? (laughs) Does this mean that there's going to be more movies? Or does this mean this movie is broken up into other chunks? Not really sure what that means. But we then see a desolate picture of the capital stricken with war. A young Snow and his cousin Tigress are starving and hunting for food, only to return home and learn that their father is dead. The story snaps forward into the future, and the young Snow is less young, but still young. He's college-age Snow. And if you're wondering why I'm not referring to his first name, it's because I can't remember how to say it and I don't want to bother trying and getting it wrong, so I refer to him as Young Snow. We find out that his family is still pretending to be rich so they can pass in high society, but the truth is they can't afford basic necessities. Snow lives with his cousin Tigress, who's a seamstress, and their grandmother. But Snow... Is at this weird Capitol Academy thing. I'm not really sure what it is, but we know that it's important, and something important is about to happen. And when it happens, Snow may get a chunk of money which he can use to help his family and attend a fancy schmancy university. That's relatable. (laughs) We meet the other Academy kids, and shocker, they're shallow brats, except for one kid who's from one of the districts, but his family got rich and now they're at the Capitol. It's a bit confusing. His It sounds like his parents are influencing the capital government in some way. I'm not sure why. But anyway, no one likes this kid because he's a bit of a radical in his views on the Hunger Games. And by radical, I mean he wants them to go away. Oh, and his name is also weird. Sejanus Plinth? I had no idea what his name was until at the end of the movie when it was spelled out on something, so I will also refer to him as his last name, easier to say, Plinth. Plinth and Snow get along better than the other kids, but Snow says that they aren't friends. Now it's the big day, and for some reason, again, this was confusing to me, it turns out there's no prize. So Snow won't be in contention for this money he was hoping to win. Instead, the game makers have decided to try something new in the hopes of making The Hunger Games more popular and watchable. So this bizarre solution is to match a capital kid with each district tribute. And the capital's kid job is to mentor the tribute to help them win. And whichever capital kid does the best job at mentoring will win. In this important prize money, but that probably means their tribute would be the winner, right? One of the creators of The Hunger Games is played by Peter Dinklage, and his character name I didn't know till I looked it up on Wikipedia is Casca Highbottom. I wasn't sure if that last name was meant to be ironic or not, since Peter Dinklage is a little person. I was almost a bit concerned (laughs) when they named him that. I was like, oh, okay then. But in any case, for some reason, this guy hates the Snow family and makes it his priority that Snow doesn't succeed or get this prize money and go to college. Each capital kid is a mentor, they're paired with their district tribute, and now Snow is paired with a skinny girl named Lucy Gray Bard. And Lucy is quite the firecracker! As she's walking up, she puts a snake in a girl's dress, causes a whole scene on camera, and then Lucy sings boldly to the camera that they can't take anything from her, like her spirit. Snow starts thinking about how he can win because he's desperate for that prize money, and with the advice of his cousin, he realizes he needs to get Lucy to trust him. Side note, this is where I thought we were going to see Snow start to manipulate Lucy and manipulate things for his own benefit. Another side note, I am confused on what this Capitol Academy thing was that these kids are in and why it's involved with the Hunger Games and the government. I don't understand the connections here between these things. And I don't understand why the Capitol thought pairing Capitol kids with district kids was going to boost ratings, especially because of this next part. At first, I thought this was a cool concept, because it shows the beginning of the mentor role, which we later see with Katniss and Haymitch, where a previous winner helps train a new tribute. I thought this moment here, in this prequel, may be the beginning to that concept. The mentors are very involved with helping their tribute, but we notice Snow tries to help Lucy, but the capital kids aren't actually supposed to help their tributes at all. They don't really serve in any mentor capacity. They barely have time to talk to the tributes, get them supplies, or anything. Snow gets in trouble for helping his tribute, even though he was told to be the best mentor. I didn't understand why the Capitol would say, here, help these tributes be successful, and then they basically make it a useless concept because the mentors can't do anything. It's essentially pointless. And how does it boost ratings? Except Snow does wiggle out some of these restrictions. He cheats, and he starts learning how to manipulate the media so that the audience likes Lucy. The more Lucy is liked by the audience, the more people will send money for supplies for her during the game, and I liked this aspect because, again, it shows the beginning of concepts that we eventually see in the later movies with Katniss. Now for another part of the movie that confused me. The relationship between Lucy and Snow made my brain hurt. This may just be me, and to be honest, a lot of my confusion may just be me having a hard time following all of the things, And I'm sure book readers had no problem, but anyways, I don't understand their dynamic. At first, I thought Snow was purely just using her for his own benefit, and then I thought maybe she was actually tricking him and using him for her benefit. And then I felt like I was blindsided when we see that Snow actually loves her and she likes him too, and I'd been following the movie thinking that wasn't the case, so I was left scratching my head wondering, wait, he's for real? I thought he was playing the game. I thought she was playing the game. I think part two, called The Prize, is where the whole Hunger Games section fits, and it's pretty brutal. Snow cheats a lot, but they win, except they don't. And that is actually one of my favorite parts of the movie, and I wasn't expecting it. I thought, they won. Okay, the movie's gonna end soon. Snow was gonna get his scholarship and his money, and Lucy's gonna go her own way, or whatever. The movie's ending. But no. I loved this twist. Snow was caught. He was caught cheating, and he actually had to deal with the consequences of it. He loses everything and is deployed as a peacekeeper, and he chooses to go to District 12 where Lucy is, and that's the moment when I realized, oh, he cares about her, and it wasn't for the prize money this whole time? Wait, 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 wait. Who is Snow? Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he complicated? And it's okay if you have complicated characters, it's okay to have morally gray people, it's okay to have an anti-hero. And I just don't think the movie did a good job at trying to depict a morally gray character, if that's what they intended. But anyway, I'll continue. This is part 3, The Peacekeeper. And I think my eyes were closed or I wasn't paying attention because I missed this and didn't realize the movie was now in part three. I thought we were still in part two and I was like, man, this part two is going on a lot longer than part one. So I was just confused for the majority of this movie. Anyway, Snow isn't going to District 12 alone. The guy who wasn't his friend and now basically is his friend It's Plinth, but Plinth wants to end the Hunger Games, he wants to make change happen, which is why he's a peacekeeper? The reason for him becoming a peacekeeper confused me. Felt like plot contrivance. I didn't really understand why Plinth would think this was a good idea. Peacekeepers brutally beat up civilians, shoot people, and basically terrorize populations into submission. Why on earth did he think becoming one would be a good idea? Given his moral convictions, he, he's not one of those guys that can kind of do some bad things but for the greater good, you know, hide his identity and secretly do stuff on the side. Like, he, that's not the kind of person he is. He just has to charge forth and stand up for what's right. So being a peacekeeper is obviously going to cause conflict. So, Plinth and Snow are now best buds, and Snow loves Lucy, and this back end of the movie, part three, was the most confusing section of the movie and constantly left me wondering, what is this, and how long is this movie? If you're wondering how much longer a movie is till it ends, that's not a good sign. So, Snow and Plinth, shocker of all shocks, have a disagreement over how to do good when you're a peacekeeper, and this made me want to scream at the movie. I was so confused. There are these creatures that are birds, which, if you press a record button, will record what you say and repeat it back to you, basically like a tape recorder, except it's a bird. Now, Snow and Plinth are putting them in cages to ship to the Capitol, and they have a big argument. Snow hits the record button on one of the birds, and I thought he did it intentionally because he notices the remote, looks at it, presses the button, and records some of their conversation. And then Plinth leaves, angry. Snow looks at the recorder, plays back the conversation, which has pretty bad evidence against Plinth for wanting to be part of the rebellion, and then Snow knowingly puts that bird with the recording of Plinth on the train, headed to the capital. I'm sitting there thinking, oh... He's, like, backstabbing his friend. He's just using him to get an advantage. Okay, I I see a little bit now where this is going. And then Plinth is hung for treason, but Snow looks shocked and horrified. Snow looks so guilty and horrified that he got his best friend killed, Like I said, even though he seemingly knew he was recording it on purpose and put it on the train. When he did it in the scene, I thought he was doing it so Plinth would get caught. And then he's upset that Plinth got caught. Like, dude, were you using him or not? (laughs) And because he sent the bird, Snow gets recognized and he gets a promotion and he gets to go to District 2. And he gets to climb the ladder to get back into the capital where his family is. And he wants to do all that stuff. But he's in love with Lucy for some reason, so he's torn between Lucy and the Capitol! This movie is all over the place with Snow. What are his motivations? Was he just using Lucy, or wasn't he? Why did he do this to his best friend if he wasn't using him to help himself out? Like, the actions do not line up at various points throughout the movie. I do not feel like I understood Snow at all by the end, like how he became to who he was when we see him with Katniss. I I don't understand any of the connections here. And then at the end of the movie, it's so annoying and obnoxious because Snow and Lucy want to run away together together into the woods, I guess. And it's super random. And basically they have this whole confrontation and she tries to run away from him and he chases her and tries to kill her. Like, why is he doing this? Why did she do that? What is this movie trying to say? Why is Lucy doing anything that she does in this entire movie? I don't know what the book is like, but this reeks to me of bad writing, bad writing, bad writing. So that is a poorly done, loose summary of the events in the Hunger Games movie and why I was confused throughout it. But you may have noticed I've barely talked about Lucy, so let's touch on her real quick. Her character confused me. Like I said, this movie confused me. She has a bizarre southern accent that Rachel Zegler does not pull off at all, and she's a coven, which sounds like the movie's version of a gypsy, like a nomadic traveling person. But no other people in District 12 sound like her, so she seems so random and out of nowhere. And there are points in the movie where she's sassy and manipulative, and it seems like she's playing the game. She's using snow, but then she isn't actually, and she's actually a nice person, and oh, she loves snow, I guess. Her character is weird. I didn't connect with it, and it doesn't hold a candle to Katniss, obviously. And while some of the movie is based on a love story between Snow and Lucy, I never felt like they had a strong romantic chemistry or even an actual love story. I thought it was actually going to be the opposite of a love story where they were trying to use each other, pretending they were in love, but actually neither of them weren't. But that's not actually what happened. But to be fair, in the Hunger Games movies, there isn't a huge emphasis on a love triangle between Peta, Katniss, and Gale, which I actually think was a strength to the films, but there was that small undercurrent of tension between them, and personally for me, the satisfying conclusion of when Katniss and Peta came together at the end. And this reminds me, as I think about what I loved so much about the first movies, they had depth. There was a richness to the characters and a depth of humanity to those movies that I don't see in this one. Katniss goes through so much. All the characters do. It's brutal to watch, but in a way where you can connect and empathize with their struggles and root for them along the way, and you just can't really do that in this movie. Last thing before I move on, I wanted to point out, along with the bad writing and mid-acting, this movie suffers from terrible pacing. What is pacing? Pacing. Pacing is in any form of storytelling, from TV shows to movies to books, but it works differently between mediums, of course. Simply, it is the pace at which a story is told. It is how much space is between events and your plot, how fast your characters get from point A to point B. You want to hit a nice balance so your audience can follow along easily, but also stay engaged and paying attention. Slow moments in a movie should probably happen slowly, but not frequently, and big things probably need some tension and stress building up to it this movie's third act is horribly slow. I was confused on where the story was going. I lost connection to the main characters, unsure of motives, unsure of goals, had a hard time following along. The pace was slow, and so getting from point A to point B took a while, and during that time, I'm like, when is this movie going to end, and how is this movie going to end? I liked the first and second acts far better than that last one. But I don't want to harp too long on these things which made me want to scream at the screen because I didn't hate this movie at the end of the day. Despite the confusing characters, the bad writing, I think a large part of why I ended up liking this movie as much as I disliked it was the actor for Snow. Tom Blythe plays Young Snow, and he kills it in this movie. Where the bad writing continually faults, his acting made me care about him, even when the script didn't, and helped me want to follow his journey while I was confused throughout it. I really liked him as Young Snow. He carried this movie practically on his shoulders alongside the amazing Viola Davis. She eats it up as the game maker in this movie. An amazing villain. Loved her performance. And those were the two standout performances. Everyone else was pretty much mid, including Rachel. I did not like her accent, but her singing was really good, and I think that might be why she got the role. The fact that she can sing, and there is quite a bit of singing in the movie. Obviously, I love the aesthetic of the world of The Hunger Games, the steampunk out of time, science fiction elements. The world building is confusing, but vastly intriguing. One last thing I want to bring up that I liked about this movie and what again made it enjoyable for me despite the grueling confusion was how the movie played with the themes of media and manipulation. While it was unsuccessful in playing with those themes, I loved seeing the building blocks in this prequel, knowing how it will build into the scale we see it by the time Katniss is a tribute. I mentioned this earlier, but I love the Hunger Games and how they show humanity at its darkest. How we will use people to get what we want, the desires for power, money, and pleasure, and how even noble rebellions can quickly succumb to those same human weaknesses. It is a great illustration of human nature, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And as someone who loves talking about media, I love how The Hunger Games illustrate the use of media and how people can use media to manipulate narratives and manipulate the masses for a certain agenda. But this movie isn't as certain as the original series on what it has to say about those themes. Media, manipulation, humans' depravity. This narrative seems lost in itself. And I don't know if that's in the books or just in this adaptation and bad directing but there was so much potential to continue the legacy of the unique YA storytelling. And this brings me to the broader conversation of prequels, sequels, and remakes. It's almost a joke at this point because everyone, not just us film nerds, are seeing it. Hollywood is creatively bankrupt and nothing is sacred. Everything that was once popular is being redone, and not to say something new, And not to say something new or add something special, but purely for the sake of banking on the original story's success. There are a few exceptions to this, and one exception would be Top Gun Maverick, a sequel to the iconic 80s film. They were actually to pull that one off with flying colors. But really quick, let's look at a brief list of recent Disney movies. A Doctor Strange prequel, a sequel to Enchanted called Disenchanted, a sequel called Hocus Pocus 2, an original from Pixar called Turning Red, remake called Peter Pan and Wendy, Little Mermaid remake, Pinocchio remake, Black Panther sequel, I could go on. Sequels and remakes and prequels are everywhere and barely original ideas, and if there is an original idea, it isn't always very good, which is why I think they keep going back to the well of their old classic content. But this is across the board, not just Disney. I know I like to harp on Disney, but Disney is a good example. And the other studios are guilty of this, too. Warner Brothers has the DC Comics constantly pushing out the superhero movies. Universal keeps macing Jurassic World movies for some reason. And The Minions. Netflix is making a live-action adaptation to a beloved series, The Last Avatar. And they're making The Chronicles of Narnia. And it's making me really sad. Nothing is sacred anymore. The point I am trying to make is we are living in a world where our media is suffering. Our storytelling is suffering, which means our culture is suffering. Humans are not producing quality stories. They're not producing quality art for us to engage with, and that is a problem. It may seem small, but I think this is indicative of the problems within our culture and how we may be slowly approaching total cultural collapse. If we can't tell good stories, we can't communicate our humanity. If all people care about is money, and all we're doing is turning our brains off and paying to see mediocre stories, then we're losing our humanity. I know this sounds rather dramatic and intense, but that's just what I'm seeing across the board in recent releases, and it concerns me. Yes, at the end of the day, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is fine. It wasn't a terribly produced movie. It looks good. Acting is okay. It's entertaining. But as I compare this movie to the original series, I find this one to be a shallow version, made more in the pursuit of monetary gain, and not because there was a real story to tell and something to say about the games we all play. The Real Review Podcast, hosted by Zoe Moody, is a part of the Real FM Podcast Network. You can listen to more Real FM podcasts or Real FM radio on the Real FM app or at real.fm.